I was home in three hours after we got off stage. And it was the weirdest, like possibly the weirdest day of my life. My, my in-laws were there and they were having a nice family party because Sue wanted to, the kids were, she didn't think it was appropriate for them to go. And I think she was right. I really, as the years have gone by, admire her for that. She put mothering first and was very happy, but they were having like a, like a really like family afternoon. And I came in, like, I was just like, I was like, oh, oh. And they're like, you know, go get the cold cuts from the, talking to my mother-in-law, who I love. But it was definitely really weird. We just ran from the city. We were like, whoosh. The music ended at Fish's Big Cypress Festival, roughly seven hours, 13 minutes, and 17 seconds after midnight or a little bit past 7 in the morning on January 1st, 2000. The band was home quickly. It took fans and organizers a little bit longer. My name is Jesse Jarno. As we'll learn in this final episode of After Midnight, brought to you by Osiris, leaving Big Cypress wasn't quite that easy, even if the traffic wasn't nearly as bad. The festival's impact was enormous, most immediately on fish themselves, but as the grandest of Fish's 590s festivals, its legacy on the music world rippled outwards from the Seminole Swamp. It rarely happened so cleanly between one century and the next, but for both the band and the culture they nourished, Big Cypress was the end of one era and the beginning of the next. Road manager Brad Sands shepherded the band off stage. They were out of there pretty quick. I mean, probably within a half hour or something. Like, I think they were, like, packed and ready to go. And then I was like, I remember, like, sort of, like, pat, you know, doing stuff on the stage, you know, just... And then, like, the band was gone, and you came back, and you're like, oh, my God, look at this place. <laughs> that disaster area. At least in one of Trey Anastasio's tellings of the story, as the band walked off, he and drummer John Fishman turned to one another and asked, now what? What are we going to do next? We should just quit right now. Fish recalled the exit well. The thing that sticks in my mind that I always remember, I have this vivid memory of coming off the stage. I remember what T-shirt I was wearing, what I changed, the clothing I changed into. Like I took off the dress and took off the sneakers and changed into this this white shirt that I had that had this like hand-drawn uh, from... Uh, uh, the guy that just passed away recently uh, from Austin, Texas, Daniel Johnston. It, 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 in all our early days, we played there, and there's this guy who was selling T-shirts on the road, and I bought this T-shirt. It was like scribbled, like aliens and craziness on this T-shirt. It was like my favorite T-shirt. And uh, I didn't know that I bought it from Daniel Johnston. So somebody years later was like, oh, that's a Daniel Johnston T-shirt that had holes in it and shit. Like, I don't know, other people, I guess, were framing theirs or something. We got off the stage, and I guess it's like, what, 8 in the morning or 6 or 7 or, you know, it's early in the morning, sunrise, you know, within an hour after sunrise or something. And got off the stage, changed, went to the catering tent, had a huge plate of baked beans and scrambled eggs. When it was finally over, that the tour buses left immediately. Um, and and we remember walking back to our parking lot. We, we had already packed up our tent and, and put it all in the car so that we could just walk out and leave. And um, we, were, we all just remember the, the tour buses leaving and everybody standing along the road cheering as they were going off, which was pretty awesome. We got on a private jet, which was really abnormal. Like, we weren't flying around regularly on private jets at that point. That was like a real special occasion. 
because the traffic was so crazy going in and out. Manager John Paluska was with them. I was on the first plane out with the band, um, which was, it's always a tough call. Not a lot of words were said on that plane, as I recall. <laughs> no, they were all asleep. No, it was a very quiet flight home. It was just like, okay, well, that was that. <laughs> so let's fly, fly back to frigid Vermont. <laughs> I, I remember this like it happened yesterday. Golf carts took us to the plane. We got on the plane or the van or whatever. It took us to the plane, get on the plane, flew home. And within two hours, I was laying on my couch in my house on my green couch, which is in my studio, in my house in Essex Junction, Vermont. And I was like laying there and I had been, I had just been on stage in the swamp in Florida, not for, not even for like three or something. And, and it was, and I was laying, it was 11 o'clock. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. I remember it was 11 o'clock and I I was laying there in my Daniel Johnson shirt and I'm like, and I had my hands behind my head. I was like, that was fucking sick. We just, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm back on my couch at home. And what just happened? You know, what, it was like a dream. The whole thing was like this really surreal, bizarre, you know. Road manager Brad Sands stayed behind and surveyed the wreckage. All through those five days we were all there, it was like, wow, this is great. This is amazing. Look how beautiful this is. Literally, the, when the last note ended, it was just desolate. Like, not even desolate, just everything looked broken. The pool had, like, a film on it. You know, like, you know, all the, like, trailers were trashed, you know. The band was gone, and then you came back, and you're like, oh, my God, look at this place. Then when the sun was up and the show was over, the place looked like a war zone. There were bodies everywhere. You know, people were passed out. Debris everywhere. Here comes the sun is playing um, over the loudspeaker, and I remember um, we were walking out, just you know, sort of in a daze, kind of like everybody else, and super happy, and um, but still trying to like just figure out what just happened um, and what we experienced. And all of a sudden, you know, through through the crowd, we see the naked guy. At this point, he had um, he had found a sarong, like a multicolored sarong that had obviously been in uh, the field for the whole festival and was kind of wrapped around him. So he was, um, you know, still no shoes, still no shirt, but did have a strong at this point. And, and the look on his face was was just complete bewilderment. You know, he just was trying to figure out, I think, where he was and why he didn't have a shirt on and why he didn't have shoes on and was just kind of looking around trying to figure out what direction to go and just what it all happened. And... And I think if I remember correctly, there were these little paths that went, you know, shot off sort of the main road and went back to the campsites. And and he was walking in front of us, and then he um, he kind of turned and looked and looked almost almost like a had this like Bigfoot sort of presence about him, and then just just walked into the into the marsh and we took a right to our campsite. And I I wouldn't be surprised maybe if he's still there, just wandering around still. After all this time. <laughs> Michael Calori, now a senior editor at Wired, recalls that he camped with the Green Crew, the touring cleaner-upper squad, in what seemed like the best spot in all of Big Cypress, and how they discovered perhaps the single flaw in the campground's layout, near where 2nd Avenue curved around and turned into the front. So we camped really close to the stage, which turned out to be a mistake. <laughs> they could only empty the porta-potties on the 
um, on the, the side of the campground that was closest to the entrance and exit. And we were like all the way over by the stage and, uh, people just started taking shits on the ground around our tent. <laughs> by the time, by the time the midnight set was over, we were walking back to the tent and we're like, Oh, look at this. There's crap everywhere. You know, the way that Wookiees are, they're, they're like, they're punk rockers to the core. Like the first thing they do is they show up and they break the toilet. Over at thin air radio, our faithful host, Tad Cautious, was delivering the news of the world calmly, reading off items over a sitar drone, including one story that made the post-show music of Here Comes the Sun even more poignant. In the morning, the concert was over, um, the dawn had broken on the new millennium, and uh, the world had not collapsed as a whole. Um, so I took great pleasure in just sort of doing a very um, pleasant, uh, non-eventful news announcement of January 1st, 2000, um, and it was dawn, and I had this, like, Indian music on that was very peaceful and hypnotic, and it was definitely what I needed at the moment, and I hope that it was what other people needed, too. I think the worst thing that happened that we saw on the news was uh, someone broke into George Harrison's home and stabbed him, but then George Harrison fought back and fought him off, and the uh, cops came and George Harrison lived, and that was it. <laughs> Um, there was a real um, sense of calm and peacefulness, like, boy, we really crossed this threshold, uh, you know, on January 1st in the morning, and George Harrison is safe, and I think we can all go on with our lives now. It was nice to report that there was nothing to report. So if you do feel like hanging around, we're encouraging you to hang around, take some time, enjoy Saturday morning. You can maybe help us uh, pick up some trash and recycling. Even if you do just one little thing, your actions will be certainly writ large against the many thousands of people that are here. If you are leaving the campgrounds and you have less than a quarter tank of gas, you will be given a red piece of paper that will serve as your ticket to get to the Shell station. Because as traffic progresses from the campgrounds to the interstate, traffic will be split off. One line of traffic going to the Shell Station and one line of traffic going to the interstate. Just to keep things moving smoothly. And if you can get by without stopping at the, at the gas station, I encourage you to do so. Just in order to help things move along smoothly. Soon enough. Big Cypress Festival goers moved out of range of thin air radio and back into consensus reality. Glad to uh, announce that um, it seems like largely in world news there have been no major tragic events and uh, fears of... uh, apocalyptic ongoings have uh, melted away into a general New Year's party spirit. There have been no major glitches uh, electronically reported. As we can see now, we're online here in the radio station checking the latest news updates 
basically the big things that happened uh, over the last few days were uh, George Harrison was attacked and lived, and uh, Boris Yeltsin resigned, and the, uh, the hostages in the plane were uh, released, and in good shape, so trepidatious about the coming of the new year, but uh, reassured now to see that things seem to be going pretty smoothly in terms of not a whole lot of danger. The important stuff is Not everybody was tuned into thin air as they headed out, and nearly every big Cypress attendee, and probably most Americans for that matter, remember where they were when they discovered that virtually nothing had happened as a result of Y2K. Maybe things got weird. Maybe there was maybe there was some kind of big societal meltdown. You know, we don't know. And so as we're driving back into civilization, we're like, what are we, are we going to see burning a burning wasteland, you know? For big Cypress attendees... The truth usually revealed itself around the time they got back down Snake Road and the turnoff for Alligator Alley, at the gas station on Miccosukee Territory, where the police stop had exacerbated the traffic jam a few days earlier. There's still this Shell station here. It's, uh, I don't know the interstate uh, exit, uh, but it's it's the interstate exit um, in Fort Myers, Florida, right by, by the Fort Myers Airport. And I really remember um, parking the car at this Shell station and going in to, you know, to get supplies and get gas and use the restroom or whatever, and not knowing what was going to be on the front page of the newspaper. And that was the first thing I did, was go to the newspaper to see, like, you know, did the shit hit the fan? Is everything okay? I remember when we got picked up on January 2nd, I got the New York Times, and it said, uh, the world hasn't exploded, but Russia has a new president called Putin. I'm like, ah, whatever, who cares? Never hear him again. Anyway. We found a news station, and the... Uh, the, the broadcaster came on and said, you know, Happy New Year. It's January 1st, uh, 2000, and today in the news. And I remember this palpable moment of tension in the car where we were all really not sure what we were about to hear. I, I remember specifically thinking that something terrible would have happened in New York. So we all kind of sealed ourselves for the moment that we were about to hear about this thing we couldn't comprehend. And he said, and today in the news. The world record for driving a race car backwards around the track was set this morning and, and trailed off. For the past eight years, Vermont-based Fiddlehead Brewing Company has celebrated the art of unique and improvisational beer making. You may have had their beers at fish shows in the past, and hopefully you'll try one in the near future. When you visit them in Shelburne, you can sample one of 12 fresh beers on tap, including the classic Fiddlehead IPA. Fiddlehead reminds you to blaze on. Ben & Jerry's has always had an unconventional and memorable perspective on ice cream, just like Fish's perspective on music. In addition to sharing their Vermont roots, their partnership spans back to 1997 with the launch of Fish Food, which benefits the Waterwheel Foundation, Fish's charitable organization. 
To hear more about Ben & Jerry's work with Fish and the Waterwheel Foundation, check out Under the Scales, episodes 41 and 54. The concert grounds closed at noon on January 3rd, the ninth largest city in Florida, melting back to nothing like the wall of ice that Russ Bennett and Lars Fisk had tried to build. Promoter Dave Worland oversaw the breakdown of the festival. Fish manager John Paluska had said his goodbyes during the midnight set. Sometime late that night, John Paluska called me and he says, listen, Dave, um, uh, the band and I, we're going we're gonna to leave, uh, you know, in the morning. And uh, I hope you don't mind. Um, I'm just going to have to leave you to, you know, pick up. <laughs> and then he called me a few hours later. He says, well, I'm back at Snowy Vermont. How's it going down there? <laughs> so, but that was okay. Um, I got to go to Miami for a few days and decompress. One of the things that, that I was most proud of and um, felt like was such an amazing testament to both First and foremost, the audience, and second, you know, our planning was the place was left spotless after the concert, and I just, and in general, was remarkably free of incident in terms of you know violent incidents or you know just in, the kind of things that happen when you get eighty thousand people uh, together in close quarters, you know, with a lot of alcohol and God knows what else um, being consumed. It was a remarkably peaceful and cooperative and ultimately incredibly clean event. I mean, we, we really pushed the let's leave this place just spotless. And the amount of cleaning that was required after that event was minimal. People were remarkably good about cleaning up after themselves. It was really, it really, because we really wanted to leave a good impression. We were on sacred ground on the Seminole tribe, you know, the Seminole tribe's sacred ground. It was no joke, you know, and we really wanted to respect it. And people got it. Fish employee Beth Montori Rolls remembered the site cleanup. When it was all over with, we had made like a huge effort trying to tell people do not leave any trash. You know what I mean? Put your trash in the bags they were giving you. You know, um, bottle, cigarette bottle tops, things like that can't be left because they were going to put the cows right back out on the pasture, right? And that was a, a reality. And we did a huge public service push with the fans. And I know when it was all over, just walking through the fields and just seeing the piles of trash and bags and the ground, like, so clear. And it was really, that was one of the first times that I was like, wow, look at these people. They are so awesome, you know, because that wasn't quite what it looked like at the Clifford Ball, for example. (laughs) After getting some sleep, Jefferson Waffle continued his gig as a runner for the next few days. I remember I flew home on the 4th, and the first day was like, oh, cool, we kind of get to see the aftermath and see what it looks like. And then quickly, you know, the lights are gone, they start striking the stage, and quickly the stage is gone. And so I feel like the, the first day or so was unrecognizable that you were even at fish. And it was just a big empty field, and you slowly see the reverse. When Dave Whirlin got back to the site, there were other kinds of decompression occurring. The original design folks decided they were going to take... All the confiscated fireworks, because when people were coming in, you know, they, they get checked at the toll booth. You know, any weapons, any fireworks, that kind of stuff was all confiscated. There was quite a stash of fireworks, as you can imagine, because it was the millennium uh, that was confiscated. Russ Bennett remembers it well. Yeah, we had to break everything down, um, and that was fine. Um, one of the enduring memories was um, we had these little... Uh, Chiquis, which are, are the name of um, structures that are 
have palm fronds for roofs on them, and they're all woven together in a way. So Larsa designed these little chiquis that we and we that we put out in the in the venue. So there were sort of little personal spaces at the back of the concert field. And so when it was time to start picking them up, we started picking them up with you know large backhoes and whatnot. But on the end. Uh, security had confiscated truckloads of fireworks from people. So we ended up stuffing one of those things full of fireworks and then standing around, you know, standing behind things and firing Roman candles at it until it went off, which was hysterically funny and massively stupid. Um, but nobody got hurt. <laughs> That was pretty cool. Seminal liaison Pete Gallagher was left more than impressed by the fish crew. Once the show was over, it took, uh, they they put together a team of, I don't know how many hundred uh, young people and allowed them to stay out there. They kept the, uh, uh, the, the cooks out there and everything else. And they professionally uh, quadrant off every square foot of that cattle pasture and went over and picked up every single piece of trash. And it took them several weeks until finally um, the Seminole um, Fire Department or whatever went in there and inspected it and said, yeah, it's all gone. That was, that was part of the deal. They had to, they had to uh, leave, uh, take everything out and make, make it look like it was before. Because they, they were doing things like building, uh, uh, they, they built a... Um, a bridge or a, a boardwalk through a big cypress dome. And you go inside of a bunch of cypress trees and it's dark in there and it's swampy. And, and they built um, a boardwalk that was where you could walk around in there, you know, in, in a couple of cypress domes. And um, <clears throat> they, 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 they went in there and carefully took everything out. And, uh, and of course, later on, we realized, you know, we should have left, we should have had them leave the, leave the stage and the, and the, uh, the house, you know, the, the backstage area, and, and, and they could have had other concerts out there. The ripples of Big Cypress into the outside world were almost immediate, even if nobody was quite sure what it all meant. There was some amount of national news coverage, most of it no more than small secondhand items and roundups of New Year's events. The Associated Press filed the story, noting that some 1,200 people had been treated in the med tent and reporting one instance of violence. One employee suffered minor injuries when he was beaten by a group that stole his golf cart, the AP reported. We can stage a runaway golf cart marathon! New England's paper of record, the Boston Globe, ran a short feature. But that was basically it. The great went, but that still left a lot out. The local Florida press took notice, but it would have been impossible not to. The Miami New Times offered a longer reported piece, digging into the story of the Miccosukees and the traffic jam. The Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel, who offered constant coverage over the previous days, marveled at the fans' helpfulness in the cleanup effort. Of course, at the box office, it was a different story. Fish topped the list of highest-grossing New Year's concerts, netting an estimated $11.6 million at Big Cypress, nearly twice the $6.2 million that the Eagles, Jackson Brown, and Linda Ronstadt pulled in L.A. And when Polestar reported their top 20 acts of 1999 on January 1st, Fish ranked at number 13, 
with 27.4 million in gross ticket sales, right between Celine Dion and the Bob Dylan Paul Simon tour. One immediate effect of Big Cypress came less than three weeks later, when the Cleveland Plain Dealer reported that Fish's hot dog was headed for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Ohio and would soon be on display in the main lobby of the enormous pyramid-shaped museum. The hot dog is in sort of bad shape, curator Jim Henke remarked. Some of the paint needs to be touched up, and there are a few chunks missing. We heard a little bit about that in the last episode from Brad Sands. So, like, Richard just ran, we're like, ran, and he just ran it. Henke was slightly more condescending about the legacy of the item, telling the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the hot dog was just a fun piece to have. Obviously, it wasn't for the serious rock and roll history of it. 20 years later, many music fans continue to question Fish's legitimacy in the rock and roll pantheon. But for that matter, many music fans likewise continue to question the legitimacy of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame itself. The Hall's metrics, seemingly based on record sales, exclude numerous pioneers. Fish are in good company, ranging from Brian Eno to Black Flag. And looked at 20 years later, Big Cypress is a perfect case for Fish as an act unlike any other. An expression of both Fish's music, from their compositions to some of their most monumental jams, as well as their idealism. Big Cypress was an encouragement to musicians and artists of all stripes to enact and sustain their own creative realities. For decades, Woodstock and Altamont had offered the models of rock festivals, an A-side and B-side both glamorous and disastrous. Big Cypress was arguably the moment that changed. Like a reverse of what happened 30 years earlier, Big Cypress was the triumphant good karma A-side to Woodstock 99. It was unlike anything else, as Trey and Fish remembered. No police, sovereign nation. There was no police presence or laws at that event for four camping nights, three arrests, basically no incidents. If you think about, and this is something that I'm incredibly proud of in terms of being a member myself of this incredible fish community. Woodstock 99 was the year before. It was like fires and violence and groping and destruction and anger. And it was a, it was a commercial event generating shit tons of money. And look what happened. And our event was a community event. And I would almost say like even even going back to you know, something like Woodstock. Like, if you look at American festival stuff, at, the, at you know, at the time, in that window of time, the mid-90s and, you know, up till Big Cypress, I mean, there, there was no festival scene other than, like, Lollapalooza was, like, the only other sort of traveling circus thing that was going on and uh, in that kind of multi-band type thing. And that was a very different model. But, you know, kind of setting up shop in this one thing and having this big event. I mean, it was like Monterey or the Atlanta Pop Festival or, the you know, these pop festivals that happened in the 70s and stuff were kind of the only real sort of pre-comparisons. And a lot of those things really um, didn't come off all that ideally, you know. And so this was like, I don't know, I felt like Big Cypress was, I mean, even though it was just one band, but it was like this kind of what 
all those, the intent of all those other festivals with not really any problems. Stephen Hyden recently dug into the legacy of Woodstock 99 on the podcast series Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99. He can be heard soon on the Osiris series from the vault. If you're going to compare Woodstock 99 to Big Cypress, it really is sort of a goofus and gallant type situation, you know, where you have one of the worst disasters in music history on one hand. And then on the other hand, you have this sort of beautiful experience that, you know, in I think in almost every way was the opposite of what Woodstock 99 was like. Um, I think, you know, beyond the obvious differences between the two festivals, you know, obviously Big Cypress didn't end in riots, you know, it wasn't defined by sexual assaults or price gouging or you know, violence in the crowd. I think the biggest difference with Big Cypress was that the band was connected to the audience and that there was a feeling, I think, that was shared between the organizers and the people who attended that this was something that we were, we all wanted to do together. You know, we, you know, we want to be in this space at the end of the century and uh, at the end of the millennium and experience something that will never be replicated. And we're going to do it in a setting that's beautiful. You know, we're going to create this environment that is almost like a fantasy land, you know, type feel. And we're going to play great music for hours on end that we all love. Whereas at Woodstock 99, I think there was no connection between the organizers and the attendees. Uh, The organizers felt no empathy, really, for the people who were there. They didn't book bands that they liked. They didn't serve food and alcohol that they themselves would want to have. And the setting was this military base that had been cleaned up for toxic waste back in the 1980s. You know, that was miles upon miles of concrete. It's certainly not a place that I think any of the organizers themselves would want to spend a weekend in if they had the choice. So to me, that is the the essential difference, that uh, it's, it's an empathy gap. You know, uh, and, and that's why I think one festival turned out so well and the other festival turned out to be a disaster. Fish blasted and blazed a wide path, inspiring not only countless individual bands and individuals, but profoundly shaping the entire festival ecosystem that was beginning to emerge. Significantly, 1999 was also the year that Napster launched, turning the music industry upside down. It was only a few weeks before Big Cypress that the Recording Industry Association of America sued Napster, beginning a protracted battle that sometimes seemed to pit the music industry versus its own listeners. During the decade of tumult that followed, one of the few growing sources of income for musicians was the ever-expanding festival circuit, where Fish's DNA could be found everywhere. Dave Worland, who'd co-produced all five of Fish's events, watched as the festival map started to expand in their wake. I think we were kind of the, the gold standard at the time, you know, of, of the the festival world, or at least of the concert campout festival world, you know. I mean, there was still the Newport Jazz Festival and Folk Festival. There was still the New Orleans festivals, um, Lollapalooza in Chicago. You know, there's still those things, you know, which were mostly kind of, you know, not camping, urban. You know, what we were doing was, was a little unique, and we kind of rewrote the book. So, you know, we were in that position from the Clifford Ball on. I think I think if there was any, you know, big change was when we did the Clifford Ball, it kind of showed the industry, oh, look. And then that begat Gathering the Vibe and I don't know how many others, dozens of, of copycat festivals. I think we proved that it could be done. 
it could be done safely. And one of the things that was always an impediment for people that wanted to do these things was mass gathering laws, particularly in New York. And that was, you know, created because of the original Woodstock. Um, and so in order to be able to prove that it could be done safely and properly, once we did that, I think it opened the floodgates for other people to start doing it. And here we are, you know, festival nation. I think that there was a collective maturity, you know, just an understanding of this because most of the staff, most of our department heads had been with us from the Clifford Ball. So everybody was on this learning curve and each time they were getting better and better at what they did. Um, and, and as a result, I think each one got progressively better. And I mean, a lot of these folks are running all the other festivals, you know, Bonnaroo and you know, outside lands or whatever. I mean, it's the same people in many of those. And, and, you know, these are people that nearly cut their teeth on the fish festivals. Both Fish and my company are really proud of what we contributed. The fish festivals were certainly a conscious influence on Bonnaroo co-founder Ashley Capps. Thanks to fellow Osiris podcast Road to Now for interviewing Ashley. And Fish did their own festivals. And they also demonstrated that there was an audience out there, a rock audience out there that was still hungry for that type of experience and, uh, and, and would embrace it if it was done imaginatively and done well. So that was some of the inspiration that I think enabled us to overcome that conventional wisdom that this is a really stupid idea. A lot of our original team came from those festivals and brought that expertise in. The members of FISH were well aware of the carryover. After Big Cypress, I know that the people who started Bonnaroo took about 12 of our main staff members and they did Bonnaroo 1 and then I headlined Bonnaroo 1 and that was cool. It was cool this year too. So in that sense, it's kind of an honor. I mean, there's so many festivals now. Festival culture has become... It may have peaked. Visual designer Russ Bennett is one of the fish crew who has worked on Bonnaroo. When I was working with Bonnaroo early on, we would say, okay, let's try and make these hubs out in the campgrounds um, that are logistics, you know, medical, showers, all that kind of jazz. Let's make them be centers of art and interaction and all that kind of jazz. And they're doing that. Uh, You know, it takes a while. It takes... uh, commitment of money, uh, but there are more and more, Bonnaroo is more and more doing things in the campground because that's where the people live, um, as opposed to making the line be, okay, you're inside the venue and then you're outside the venue. Nobody's touched it. It was such a complete immersive experience in so many ways um, that and there was such a commitment, you know, that's a monetary commitment and a time commitment, all of that kind of stuff that the band supports and put forward to create that experience and these experiences. Um, it's it's really, it's profound, it's worthy, um, and I, I, I think it'd be hard-pressed to say other festivals are doing anything like that, really. Um, and in part because um, fish plays two or three sets a day and you have a lot of time to do other things with yourself um whatever that might be hang out you know walk around discover things and many of the festivals that exist today are multi multi acts 
it, and it's more stimulus than you can really absorb in, in some ways. You know, you, ha you have to pace yourself. Uh, it's like going to the museum for too many hours, you know. One of the festivals that followed in Fish's wake even took place at Big Cypress. Langarado emerged in 2003 as a jam-centric festival in South Florida, growing from the 2,500 fans that attended the first edition in Fort Lauderdale. In 2008, they staged their most ambitious festival yet. Four days and five stages, including R.E.M., The Beastie Boys, The National, Phil Lesh and Friends, Bass Nectar, and many others. Well, it might have been at Big Cypress, it wasn't Big Cypress. There were a gazillion acts and pure overload of music. The festival economy would prove to be a dangerous game for promoters, capable of going bust at any moment due to sudden weather or other unpredictable factors. The 2008 Langarada would be the last, after the 2009 iteration lost a series of local battles about where it might be held. But that's all a topic for another podcast. Both the music business and the live event business have changed incredibly since Fish's earliest festivals. In the wake of the record industry's near collapse, corporate partnerships have transformed the concert experience even further. Dave Worland describes it. Now, now it's like almost like white noise or a waterfall. It's like when you go, for example, you go to a sports, you know, any kind of sports event, whether it's in a stadium or an arena, wherever it is, you know, it's just plastered plastered to the point where you don't even see it anymore because it's just there. You just expect it. You know, there's just one billboard after another and there's electronic screens and, and, and it's everything is just selling, 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 selling. And it's almost like people, there's a generation now that's just, oh yeah, that's the way it is. Imagine, imagine a world where it's step out of that and it's just pure art, pure, it's music, it's art, it's freedom, it's just communicating with each other and not having this, these external things that are trying to grab your attention and grab your wallet, you know, it's not that. And I, to us, that was part of the whole experience that Fish and Paluska and I all wanted to achieve. And I think to some extent we did. Nineteen ninety-seven was a landmark year for Fish. Not only were they at a creative peak musically, it was also the year they formed the Waterwheel Foundation and launched Fish Food Ice Cream in partnership with Ben and Jerry's. Since then, every pint of fish food purchase has supported Waterwheel's environmental efforts in Vermont's Lake Champlain watershed. Ben and Jerry's is proud to support After Midnight in commemoration of the band's once-in-a-lifetime trip to the Everglades. To hear more about Ben and Jerry's work with Fish and the Waterwheel Foundation. Listen to Under the Scales, episodes 41 and 54. Fiddlehead Brewing Company is proud to support After Midnight. The next time you make the pilgrimage up to Vermont, check out their tasting room in Shelburne, just 10 miles from Burlington. Founded by Fish fans, Fiddlehead celebrates the same experimental roots as the band and is constantly innovating with new brews. They're also an integral part of our community, Supporting causes like Casher Trade with the For the Faithful Wild Ale series. Stop by the tasting room in Shelburne and blaze on with your Saison. Keeping track of fish set lists isn't easy. With so many songs and details, who can remember it all? But that's why there's the new Pedantic Ally plugin for iPhone and Android, compatible with most Notepad apps. 
Don't recognize Sigma Oasis? Don't worry. Using new Fizam technology, it matches songs' fingerprints with recordings from LiveFish.com. And with advances in AI, Pedantic Ally double-checks all your setlist notations in real time. Was that a Megillah tease in Simple? Of course. They tease Megillah in every Simple. What are you, some kind of fucking 3.0 noob? Go back to your edgelord hot takes about how they're playing too many new songs. Pedantic Ally is available now, wherever apps are downloaded. That's pedantic.ly. Inside jokes came fast and furious in the 90s. A reminder that no matter how much live fish audience members experienced in concert or on tape, the vast majority of the band's existence was spent away from the public eye, hatching absurdities. The Fish 2000 meme first surfaced in 1990, as we just heard, but turned up in comics in the band's newsletter, the Doniac Schweiss, and presumably in many an offstage conversation to which none of us were privy. Fish 2000 turned up again at Big Cypress. We are Fish 2000! As with the long gig and the band's musical Halloween costumes, sometimes in-jokes became reality. But now, Fish 2000 was here. Big Cypress would be a milestone in the band's history. Promoter Dave Worland remembers. Right after the Clifford Ball, um, you know, the, the, the band and our office, you know, we all got together and had a celebration. And, you know, the band said, this is what we've been working for for the last, at that point, what, 10 years, you know, um, or whatever it was. And, and, and the feeling was, boy, this, we finally did it. You know, we've, we've created our own space and our own thing with our own fans and us just as one entity. And, wow, we did it. But... Certainly Big Cypress was that cubed, if, if that's such a thing. Big Cypress was different. Everybody knew it. Here's Brad Sands. I mean, I think it's, you know, the greatest fish concert of all time. I would say Big Cypress, then maybe um, Clifford Ball, because that was the beginning of all that stuff, the first one. But Big Cypress was just, you know, it was the largest paid concert on that night. I always felt like... That was the pinnacle moment of... I mean, they always even would always say, oh, we should have just stopped then. And here's John Paluska. It definitely was impactful in a big way. I, I do remember a feeling that seemed to be shared by all the band members in particular that, wow, like, this is... We just stood at the top of the mountain. <laughs> like, where do we go from here, you know? Just that feeling of this event is going to cast a big shadow for a while. <laughs> And in a good way, but it was also, there's just been so much leading up to it and so much, uh, they've been working so hard for so long and then to have sort of this peak threshold experience that was so iconic and so singular, um, it did feel, you know, I'm not sure end of an era is the right word or something, but just, it felt somehow like, yeah, where do we go from here is probably the best 
way I recall it. And it felt mostly, more than anything, a sentiment from the band that we all paid attention to and listened to, and I remember talking with them about it. For the first time, we had something we knew we couldn't outdo, Fishman told Rolling Stone about Big Cypress in 2001. That was the end of a chapter of Fish's life, that, and, and of my life. That was like the peak of my youth. Here's something I've never spoken about, really. How, you know, this conversation that Fish and I and the other guys, I'm sure all four of us, but having backstage, which was, we should just stop. Like it felt like the wave had crashed into the shore, wave one. And it was talked about very openly in the following months where we had Amy's Farm, Clifford Ball, you know, Madison Square Garden, New Year's Eve, Time Factory, 1994, The Hot Dog. All this stuff was, these are just things, but the music, the, the albums, then Great Went, which was like shocking to all of us. Great Went was mind blowing. What is going on here? And then Lemon Wheel, which we loved, loved Lemon Wheel. And then all this, and it just kept building, and the ideas were just flowing and flowing and flowing. And then Big Cypress, and we're going to play outside, and it's a reservation, and then all night, and then the sun comes up. And then afterwards, many conversations among the band members, like, we, we what are we doing? Like, there was this feeling, like, okay, great first round. You know what's wild about that is like, I met Briar and started having kids with her a year later. And Big Cypress does not feel like, it's weird. Big Cypress to me feels like way further away. Like, it feels like a part of like the early history of the band, like my youth. Like, in my brain somehow, Big Cypress feels like Townsend Family Park. You know, like what's it, like 89... That was really a line in the sand. That was the top of the hill of that section of Fish's life, too. You know, that was like the peak of youth. Everything after Big Cypress was very waving and wagging and trying to find its footing. Good and bad, too. There were some great shows. And then Fish saying a couple times, like, why do I feel like the train is about to crash into the wall if we're not careful? He said that a couple times. When I remember going in and telling Amy... You know, who's the first festival was at her house. She was the first fan. She was literally the first person to ever stand in the front row to fish concert at Doolin's. She was our first fan. We had one fan. It was Amy Skelton. Then we had two fans. It was Amy Skelton and Brian Long. And Amy, through our first festival, and Amy was over the moon at Big Cypress. And then I went to Amy's office sometime in 2002 or something like that. I said, this is going to like, we're going to have to pull. Plug. And I remember her reaction. She was like, how fucking Luya. Nobody wanted it to stop because it had now become established and there were jobs and there were this blah, but, but she could see that the band members were not just me. It wasn't just me. It was all four of us. We need to stop. I mean, it was so big. It was such a like emotional and there was a feeling, and, and I do remember having a conversation with Fish where he kind of said something. He's like, it feels like the wave just crashed into the show. We've been, like, surfing the same wave for, like, 17 years. <laughs> and the wave just went at Big Cypress into the shore. I mean, it wasn't that long after Big Cypress that they sort of had that first hiatus. 
Big Cypress was a line in the sand, of course. Unquestionably. Every single participant in the Fish organization brought it up, and it's a well-recognized pivot point in the band's 30-year history, perhaps the single pivot point. But history is funny, too, because alongside the collective memory of the band and fans, Fish's impending hiatus was already more than a rumor by the time of Big Cypress. In fact, it had already been announced, right there on page 27 of the December 9th issue of Rolling Stone, with Christina Ricci on the cover, under the headline, Future of Fish. It's crucial to the future of the band to take a break and have a real period to grow again, the magazine quoted Trey as saying. The last time we had that was in 1987, and since then we've been going full throttle. Look at the Beastie Boys. They do an album and then a tour, and then take a long break and reinvent themselves. I'd love to be able to take the time and do that. The article announced that following Fish's summer tour, that's exactly what they'd be doing, taking a year off from the road. On rec music Fish, especially with Big Cypress unfolding, nobody even really believed it. You must choose what you believe here, one post read. Number one, Rolling Stone article written by a bunch of corporate music biz fools, or number two, the Doniak Schweiss, the official band newsletter, which, by the way, states that after a few months of R&R after New Year's, the boys plan on getting back to Europe and Japan and then a full slate of U.S. dates. But besides the European tour, all of these proved exactly true. Fish had a new album in the works, Farmhouse, scheduled for release in May. And they hopped into promotion with Augusto, playing radio sessions and Radio City Music Hall, and booking dates through early fall. As the year progressed, it became increasingly obvious that Fish 2000 weren't kidding about taking a break, though. Big Cypress was the crest of a wave that had been peaking for a long time. It became a gravitational center. On a certain level, I would also argue now, in retrospect, that even if we hadn't been drinking or doing any drugs or anything like that, the immediate aftermath of Big Cypress would have still been a really difficult period in a way because it was such a high point. And, you know, we had the long gig idea and all of these, all of these, all of the stuff we had learned from previous festivals and, and everything had kind of, and the fact that we had this, you know, this sovereign nation had given us access to a venue where people really were free and safe to, you know, they weren't, they didn't have to worry about the Dade County fucking police, you know, and whatever. The Dade County police were there to help. And they couldn't, they truly were there to help. I think the whole entire thing was like this peak of idealism of, you know, like from the musical perspective the band's you know musical goals there was kind of this feeling of all right let's go recharge the batteries for a while and this is not an end but it's a you know we're going to hit press pause and just refresh ourselves and see what new stuff emerges but you know by 2003 which wasn't that long away from big cypress we did it which i thought was you know pretty special pretty special festival too i mean i mean it's you know they they all have their own specialness but i felt like it in some ways um built upon all the 
ones we'd done in the Northeast up until that point and bettered them, you know, for me. I, I really thought that was a, a pretty incredible one. And in some ways, you can almost trace the ultimate, you know, them, quote, breaking up, which obviously was more of just an extended break in retrospect, um, as you can sort of trace trace it back to Big Cypress and say that was kind of the big, that planted the seeds of them needing to do that somehow, maybe. And then we had a great time for the next few years, but it definitely was like we didn't reset, we didn't paddle back out. You know, and it's very easy to, you know, micro-focus on, well, it was this thing, it was that thing, substances or whatever, but I think that was actually the snow on top of the mountain. I think that was exhaustion resulted in. You know what I'm trying to say? I think it was bigger than that. Fish was hardly the first artist to walk the line between exhaustion and productivity. Big Cypress was a remarkable all-nighter that bonded Fish and their fans. But in a way, so was Fish's entire career, an extended all-nighter. Big Cypress was Fish's career compressed into a single, very long night. That it was like, oh my God, we just pulled an all-nighter. Like, you know, even like when you're a kid, think about it. You like with your friends, they're sleeping over. Like we're gonna stay up all night, and then remember, like if you're a little kid, you're kind of like, well, you can't stay up all night. It's impossible. Like a lot of little kids think that. Little do they know. Later in life, you can stay up for three straight years. Oh, sorry. And after that, well, we referred you to the excellent recent documentary between me and my mind, directed by Stephen Cantor, available online now. It's now 2019, 20 years since Big Cypress and 10 years since Fish's return to the road. There were 15 years of music before Big Cypress, and counting 2003 and 2004, nearly 15 years of music since. No matter when they made the decision to take a break, the seven-hour set at the dawn of the century remains a before and after point in Fish's timeline. When Fish returned to the road in 2009, It was to a music world, entertainment landscape, and global economy that had transformed almost entirely in the decade since Big Cypress. Though the band got back together, it was without manager John Paluska, who had gone on to become a successful restaurateur in California. Fish signed with Red Light Management, who'd spent the 90s building a full-service business model for touring bands out of what Paluska and Fish had to discover for themselves. Some of the Vermont isolationism began to disappear from Fish. They're perhaps not as militant about covering over advertising in venues. It's harder when everything is enabled with an LED screen. They've learned how to pace themselves and play rock and roll as adults with families. And these days, they even occasionally perform at other people's music festivals. Fish no longer has to reinvent the lemon-shaped wheel every time they want to stage an event. If their festivals had become ways to share their secret space with the world, their return has been about a rediscovery of that same secret space. I will say, and I'm without hesitation, that the last two years, three, never have we been closer. This is what Paige said last at the end of the last tour. It's so funny. He's like, it's not fair. We could like each other this much. <laughs> like, like that's such a weird thing to say, but it's so true because it's like it manifests itself in. It's crazy. It's like all the, all the twists and turns. Paige and I were talking. We talk all the time now. I mean, he's 
my best friend, and Mike is my best friend, and and Fish is, and, and I've never been closer to Mike or Paige than in the last few years. And just all of this has kind of like it's like the soul of your friend is revealed through all of the lefts and rights and these things that are so important. At Big Cypress, fish manifested their world from the ground up, realizing it to its fullest earthly capacity. And when they left Big Cypress, that world faded from view. Fly over the concert site in Google Earth, and one can see the faint lines of the festival's grid, like a lost civilization. But the world that emerged at Big Cypress didn't disappear. It's not there all the time, but that doesn't mean it's gone. Pick a swamp, any swamp. It doesn't have to be literal. Now close your eyes and refill it. After Midnight, Fish at Big Cypress is produced by Osiris Media. Executive producers are RJB and Tom Marshall. After Midnight was produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. Written and narrated by me, Jesse Jarno. Music by Amar Sastry. Production assistance from Christina Collins. Interviews and additional production assistance from Jefferson Waffle. Art by Mark Dowd. Thanks to Fish, Red Light Management, and to all interviewees. Thanks to the fans who submitted their stories, including Stephen Grip, Patrick Hickey, Mark Blitz, Philip Schuster, Bethany Austin, Greg Netzarim, Tano, Jen Chadbourne, Josh Silverman, Mike Palmer, Dylan Behan, Rock, Scott King, Tim Pollock, Chris Dolmetsch, and Andrew Peerless. After Midnight was recorded at Telescope Audio in front of a live studio audience. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. See you somewhere down the road. <laughs>